Hi, this is Kalia. And this is Chris. And this is It's, it's a, a Queer, queer thing. thing. On this show, we focus on politics, civil rights, news, and entertainment. And on this show, we have special guests and interviews focusing on issues relevant to the LGBTQ plus community. So let's get to it. All right. So thank you for coming back to KFCF 88.1. It's a queer thing on the third Friday of every month. Just a reminder, this radio station and all of its wonderful programs are listener supported. So if you would like to make a monthly pledge, you can do that at www.kfcf.org. Just click the big donate button. And we're in a big um, pledge drive right now. So please support the station, make a donation. So that song, and we'll talk about it in a little bit was uh, Small Town by John Cougar Mellencamp, and I chose that song because of the Jason Aldean controversy, which we'll talk about later in the show, but... But we want to talk right now about the pink little Barbie movie. Oh, my gosh. The amazingly awesome, just totally blow your mind, um, just great, extraordinary Barbie movie. I've heard I, that, that from a lot of people on social media, and you went with a bunch of girls, right? I did. We uh, Half of us wore pink. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> there were people cosplaying Barbie in the movie theater oh, lobby. Cool. Um, they'd taken down all the big promo things. So a couple weeks ago when we went to see Indiana Jones, they had the big Barbie box cut out where you could take your picture. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was very cute. That was not there at the theater we went to last night, which was kind of a bummer. The one that Matt Gates's wife took her picture in yeah, at the well, that, Hollywood premiere, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. But we did. We had a wonderful time. It was great. I want to go back and see it again because I know there was stuff that we missed because there was just so many little visual jokes and gags, but it was happening really fast and there were times when they would say a line and the audience would just roar with laughter and you would not hear the next line so I can't wait to go see it so again. tell me this, Greta Gerwig uh, directed it and she's mm-hmm. a great director and mm-hmm. she's very feminist and uh, female empowering. Yes. You know me as a guy, Barbie, no interest whatsoever, <laughs> but know, tell me why somebody who's thinking of this as, oh, it's a doll they made a movie about, okay. why they should see this. Well, I will tell you, there was actually a surprisingly number of men in the theater, and at first we were like, oh, I wonder if these are all gay guys, but no, there were very clearly some guys there with their wives and daughters and, and or with their girlfriends. There was one couple, I was pretty sure they were on a date, and I was like, yes, ladies, this is how you test him to see how open-minded he is by taking him to this movie on an early <laughs> date. But it was it was great, actually. I, was this I, opening night? Night, the night yeah, uh, yeah okay. actually it was. Right. I, I will tell you that the issues of patriarchy harm men. And you know that, and yeah. I know that, yeah. and a lot of people know that, but not a lot of people know that, if you know what I mean. And so this is a story of Barbie, but it is also a story of Ken realizing what the patriarchy is, thinking, that's effing awesome. Let me use that to my advantage. And then realizing maybe it's not as good as he thought. And it's also a story about a mother and a daughter. And it's a story about the expectations that we put on women that are unrealistic. I mean, it does a lot in this movie. And the opening scene is probably the best opening scene of a film that I have seen I mean, I can't even I can't even tell you, Chris. I think I laughed more in this movie than I have ever laughed in a movie in my entire life. Cool. So without giving the plot away, basically isn't is is the plot that they come out of the toy world and into the real world? That is part of the plot. Okay. Yes. Yeah, There's we don't want to so tell tell more because it just I, came out. I will tell you that there there were rumors on the internet, at least in the corners of the internet where I lurk, and they were saying, Oh, there might be a, a little lesbian story with Barbie. I heard that, yeah. It's not there. It's not true. And that's okay. We don't need 
need a lesbian and everything. Are there same-sex relationships in the movie? Well, Ken seems pretty gay to me. He not, always was. Not, not he always Ryan, was. When I the, took him to the backyard <laughs> with G.I. Joe, yes. a lot of gay stuff happened. I will say, happened. not the Ryan Gosling Ken, but there's oh, definitely the seems okay. some, some Ken um, shenanigans. But there, I mean, it was just, what was great was that all of the women were Barbie, but they were all different. And I, I really liked the, even in the credits at the end, it was Barbie played by this actress, Barbie played by this actress. So they were just Barbie. And it was, it now, was beautiful. Now, I saw today online that the Million Moms group, which, you know, goes, comes out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, do that. They come out against everything. Mm-hmm. They are, of course, against this movie, and they're claiming it's because there's a transgender doctor or psychologist in the movie. So there are definitely a zillion cameos, and I'm not going to spoil any plot points here, but I will say that when we say that feminism is for all women and trans women are women, yes, we say that feminism is for all women and, and trans, trans women, women are, are women. women. So yes. there you go. Sit on a... Tack. Trans women are Ladies. women, people. Yay. I'm using the happy bell. Look That's at that. That's right. And those million moms can just go sit on a tack. Yeah, so, they there can. You go. I think there's only three of them anyway. But <laughs> they can share a tack. Exactly. <laughs> They're just like the Catholic League. That's one guy, and the million moms are like three friends in a cul-de-sac somewhere. Okay, but speaking of better moms and maternal figures and bridging into familial support, I know that you got to go see some family recently in Monterey, and you had quite a little adventure. Yeah, so we went uh, this last weekend, we went to Monterey and Carmel with uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law from L.A. and my brother-in-law and sister-in-law from Ohio. We all converged. And it, we were fast. We all stayed at the same hotel. James and I got there first because, of course, we're only coming from Fresno. And we got there and there's a letter, or they handed us a letter when we checked in and it got to the room and I'm looking at it and it's like, be prepared because tomorrow is the Monterey Pride Parade and it's passing right in front of the hotel and you will not be able to get your car out for a couple hours or whatever. And I'm like, so I, we went down to the desk. I'm like, did you throw this Monterey Pride Parade today in front of our hotel just because James and I came here and we're <laughs> gay? We came from Fresno. So it happened. It was really cool. We actually have a little audio clip um, about that, and we're going to play for it, play it for you right now. Okay, so I'm here in Monterey, California with... Melanie Zaragoza. Melanie, what, what do you do for the Pride organization? I am the co-chair for Monterey Peninsula Pride alongside Mayor of Monterey, Tyler Williamson. Okay, and what? Uh, how long has this organization existed in Monterey? Our organization's been here since 2017, actually founded by Tyler Williamson, and um, we've thrown our Pride Parade here in town every year since then, um, and it's pretty incredible to see 400 people marching with us wow, today. Wow, that's great, and Tyler is actually the mayor of Monterey, He right? is, he and is. Also, one of the founders of the organization. Yes. What's the organization name? Monterey Peninsula Pride. Okay. And, and so, so, what's the plan for today? The plan today is to march our 400 supporters down Alvarado Street in downtown Monterey. We'll have a celebration with drag performers down in Custom House Plaza. And then we have a wonderful after party to just keep everything going tonight. Oh, great. And how has it grown over the years? What, what did it start out as, as opposed to 400 today? It started really as a protest march. And, um, it's completely run by volunteers. There's no staff that puts this together. And it's grown into this incredibly huge, well-attended celebration that people look forward to every year. We've got people like the Monterey Bay Aquarium supporting us. We have Montage Health supporting us. It's been really incredible to watch it grow. So I have to ask this as a political podcaster. Any protest against you guys over the years or today? We've actually hosted in July uh, every year that we've been founded. And um, since we've been founded, 
surrounded and we haven't run into protesters. I think maybe because July is a little quiet, but next year we'll be hosting in the middle of June. And um, But luckily, we've had a lot of really wonderful support here in Monterey and even our first queer mayor in Tyler Williamson of Monterey. Well, that's great. Well, I'm going to let you go because I know you're busy, but thank you for talking to us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, I'm here with... Alabama. Alabama, and why are you here today? I'm supporting my sister Okay, and everyone cool. else here. Your sister's in the, in the LGBTQ plus community? Yes. And is this your first Pride Parade in Monterey? Yes. Yeah? It is. How exciting. I know. How come you didn't go to one before? You just got heard about it, or...? I was going to go to the one in San Francisco, but it just didn't work out. That one's chaotic. And I've been okay. saving the shirt. Oh, that's a great it. shirt, yeah, too. thank you. All right, so what do you want to say to people about being uh, supportive of the LGBTQ plus community? We should just support one another, and it's cool to be gay, and I cool. love it, and yeah, it's awesome. All right, great. Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're okay. Okay, I'm here at Monterey Pride with... Wave. Francis. Jordan. Emma. Okay, why are you guys here today? Uh, I'm here because I am part of the LGBT community, and my little sister is on the Adams Family float. Okay, cool. That's cool. How about you? Same thing, but it's my little brother. Okay. Yeah, because I'm part of... Also gay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, because I'm part of the queer community and just wanted to come here and have fun with friends. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm from the queer community, and I was basically just in town, and it lined up. That's what happened for me. I'm here for a family thing, and we didn't even know it was Pride, so what's it like being a part of the community in Monterey? It's very interesting. It's a very welcoming and accepting place. I do find that I'm able to have a lot of opportunities here. And because there's so many other uh, queer people here, it's nice. It's very easy to find that community and so many others just like you for yeah, support. Yeah, it seems like there's a decent-sized community here. I didn't even know that. Yeah, no. Um, I'm in an arts collective, and it sometimes feels like everyone there is gay. <laughs> oh, really? Well, that's cool. All right, it's you guys. You guys have fun today. Thank you. you. So that, like I said, we didn't even know was happening. It was very cool. They had a great turnout. Um, it lasted about 25, 30 minutes. Oh, the ideal length of a parade, yeah, if you exactly, ask me. Exactly. Um, <laughs> What's interesting is that we went when we went to Carmel, uh, no, we went to Cannery Row the next day, which is in Monterey, and they had, uh, there were some after parties. I didn't pay too much attention to them, and we kept hearing this these women just, it sounded like a lot of women just screaming, and James and I are like, you know, every every few seconds, ah, and I'm like, oh, must maybe it's male strippers or something because it was in this building across the way. And we ignored it. We walked back and forth. And finally, James went up to see, it. and it was a drag show. Oh, that was an after party for Pride, so that That's was really awesome. cool. I really like that she said that it had started as a protest. That's very Stonewall esque over it there is. in yeah. Monterey. Yeah. So yeah. coast to coast. That's very cool. And I, I really like what she said. It's cool to be gay. And you know what, guys. It is cool to be it gay. It is cool to be gay. But I have a question. This is an audio podcast. So what was the shirt? She said, you know, I saved the shirt. And you said, that's a cool shirt. Damn you. I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I don't remember. Oh. I should have said it out, you know, when I was doing the interview, but I don't remember. This is remember. how you know we don't rec- uh, practice these little segments right here, people. Because <laughs> yeah. otherwise I would not have put them on the I spot. Like, don't ask me, Kaylee. Don't ask me. <laughs> I think it's great that you have a supportive family. I have a supportive family. In fact, just recently I was at a family reunion in. Um, in June 
And my mother was talking about how she was talking to another family member of ours who doesn't understand the transgender thing and had seen something on Fox News and was like, rah, 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 rah. and my mother um, went on a little tear about how that was, you know, ignorant thinking and people just want to be people and, you know, all of this stuff. And she just, she laid into it. And I was just so proud of her well, because my me. mom's not an overly confrontational person. And it is hard sometimes to speak a truth that's not even your truth. Right, it's like tangentially right. involved because there's no actual trans people in my immediate family. But my mother definitely took this to heart and she spoke to this other family member and you know I don't know the long term effects of that but I was very very proud of her so that's interesting so um, my uh, one of my sisters-in-law that was there um, ta started talking to me the first night we were there about some trans members of the family and she said I want to be on your podcast and I'm like okay and she had She's never listened to a podcast, so <laughs> I had her listen to a couple, and I did an interview with uh -huh. her while we were at, and and we're going to have that on a future show, and maybe you could talk to your mother, and that would be because I think it, See, it's again, important. See again with the not recording ahead of time, because like now he's put me on the spot, so yeah, here we I go, <laughs> or somebody else. I mean, I'd like to talk more to people, uh, cis people in our families and other people's families that are having to not having to deal with, but are mm -hmm. dealing with. LGBTQ members of the family and how that you know, yeah. dynamic plays out. I think that's important. There was this really beautiful Tumblr post. Yes, Tumblr still sort of exists in the far reaches of the internet. And it was talking, it was basically this conversation back and forth. One person started by saying, oh my gosh, you know, my child thinks that they're trans and they want a binder and I'm just horrified, I'm angry and blah, 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 blah. And the other person had such amazing grace and were like, wow, I love that you love your child and you're worried about your child. Let me give you some resources. And and just kept reiterating the reason why this bothers you is because, you know, you're you're scared and you did it, you know, you're but you care and caring is important right, and you don't right. want anything to happen to your child. And it I mean it went full circle. I don't know if this really was an actual conversation, but it felt very authentic and it felt like this is a good model of of not just reacting in in anger and shutting down the conversation when the person you're sitting across the table with says something horrible. But to actually kind of question it, but then push back in a gentle way. I've got to. I'll link it to you. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll share it. it on goes our the thing. other way, where the LGBTQ people in the family act angrily toward their family members because they're not understanding right, right. away. And there's a learning curve for everybody. Uh, even those of us in the community, there was a learning curve about transgender people. So for if sure. you are interested or if you have a family member that would be interested in doing a brief interview with us for this future episode, get hold of us at it's a queer thang, T-H-A-N-G, at gmail.com. We also spoke recently, Kaylee and I, at PFLAG. Yeah, that was really interesting. They asked us to come and tell our stories and... Uh, you know, basically talk about the show and stuff. And, you know, I think a lot of us in the community know that PFLAG exists, but, you know, if you're if you're in the community, you might not really go to a PFLAG thing. It's not maybe geared towards you. You're not the target audience. But I think that the work that PFLAG does, and in case you don't know, PFLAG is parents and friends and loved ones of gays and, and lesbians, etc. And what the work that they do is basically being a support system for those people and a support system for the families of the LGBT community. Because, again, like you said, there is a learning curve, and right, that's, that's right. what is going on. We have an interview 
interview that we did with a uh, lawyer from the, uh, a professor, I'm sorry, he's a lawyer and a professor from the Santa Clara School of Law talking to us about the recent Supreme Court decisions and the long-term ramifications and what they kind of mean. And you guys, I'm just going to tell you, it's a little bit of an optimistic interview. You might not think it's going to be optimistic. <laughs> Even though Chris is part of it. But it's optimistic. <laughs> so stick around for that interview. We are so excited to have with us today Bradley Jundef. Professor Jundef is a well-regarded author on the topics of federalism, judicial behavior, and American constitutional development. He has had extensive experience with the Supreme Court, having served as judicial clerk to the Honorable Sandra Day O'Connor, and he's also served as the clerk for the Honorable Danelle Reese Tatcha of the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. He currently is a professor at the Santa Clara School of Law, and welcome, Professor. Thank you for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. We wanted to pick your brain a little bit about the recent Supreme Court decision. There's been a lot of headlines on a lot of fear and some fear mongering. And we really wanted to get a sense of what this decision means in the grand scheme of things and what it means to the random lay person who may or may not want to have a website or their hair done or a wedding cake or go to school, et cetera, et cetera, at places that might be in a conservative part of the country. So what can you tell us? Well, I I mean, there's a lot to unpack. And I think one thing to understand about what this particular case actually decided is that it was all about speech. Uh, And in fact, one of the important parts at the beginning of the opinion that Justice Gorsuch lays out is that there was no dispute that what was at issue was pure speech on the part of uh, the individual who's creating the website. So one thing to understand is this doesn't extend to discrimination generally. It is about whether a state can use an anti-discrimination law to force someone to engage in what the court again described as pure speech that contradicts their own personal beliefs, deeply held religious beliefs in this circumstance. However, well-meaning or misguided, depending on one's perspective. So this does not, at least as it is currently, this this particular decision does not extend beyond circumstances that involve compelled speech where the government is actually forcing someone to say something against their own deeply held views. So, I mean, just to make sure we're, we're clear on what exactly this case is about. So Colorado has a law that generally prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation much like many states, including the state of California, that remains perfectly enforceable. And this person said, I would not deny anyone services that they came to me for in my business purely based on their sexual orientation. What I can't be forced to do is actually engage in speech by putting up my own words uh, on a website that would be reasonably understood to be endorsing marriage between two people of the same gender. So there's a difference between a business, you know, any old business that makes its, uh, that is, we refer to in the law as a public accommodation that opens its doors to the public, somehow discriminating between customers based on their sexual orientation. That can, the laws that, that, prohibit that sort of discrimination are fully enforceable. But this went another step and said that it actually is discrimination if you are unwilling to say something yourself with your own words that endorse 
the idea of same-sex marriage contrary to your own beliefs, right? So we probably have a totally different case, at least in the in the framework of this opinion, if all she was doing was setting up a bare bones, like, I don't know, a website where her speech was not involved in any way. It was just setting up a blank slate that anyone could go on and create their own speech. That's different than I'm employing you and I want you to say the following things on my behalf about my wedding and Colorado saying, yeah, and you have to do that because once you say you open yourself up to creating a website, you have to say whatever someone wants you to say on your through your business, right? So that's the type of case we were dealing with and not the former where it merely involves, you know, not discriminating against people who walk in the door based on their sexual orientation. So what's interesting is that so she brought this case before anyone had ever come to her and said, I want you to make a website for my gay wedding. So we don't even have the circumstances where she someone came in, she refused, they sued. She went to the Supreme Court and said, I want to have this business and I don't want to run into this down the road. Mm-hmm. So you're so I think this was brought up in, in the justices arguing the case was, let's say, like you just brought up, she had stock images and stock text that was going to go on a website. She's not protected in that case, it seems like if someone said, give me package B and that happens to have two male figures and pre-made speech that did not necessarily come from her. She can't get out of doing that is what I understood. Let's give you a different circumstance. Let's say, and I I heard this on a kind of another podcast that I'm going to modify a little bit. Let's say there's a photographer in a mall and they want to do a 1800s, 1850s theme uh, Christmas photography. And at the time, Black people did not have their civil rights. And they want to say, I'm not going to choose to photograph black families in this instance because of the time frame and the theme, because that goes against that. What do you think about that kind of a situation? I would think that the, the, the government would have the authority to force them to, to provide that service once they open themselves up as a business. So how is that different from her or a cake? And, and I think the cake design case in Colorado is still up for decision, right? It, they, they never reached a decision on that? Yeah, well, it, yeah, they, they ended up declining review, which means right, it's, right. it's non-precedential in any way. So, Same so with this the forest. If this was the photographer's creative decision... How does that differ from her creative decision to do a website, which... Yeah, so so we're, we're speculating at this point, right? right. We're, we're extrapolating from what the court said. And again, I, I want to be careful to say, based on what the court actually decided in this particular case, right, we could speculate about where this might be going in the future, and it might be very different for different members of the majority and et cetera. So I, I think... What I would say about the hypothetical you just posed is that it's not clear by any stretch that merely taking a photograph of individuals is, quote unquote, pure speech in the way that using text uh, describing and promoting and expressing, you know, I, I guess, celebration of a of a wedding would be right, particularly in light of how um, there are deeply held religious beliefs about what is what what weddings mean and 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 which are sanctified by God or what have you. And I, I have a hard time 
think, you know, in your hypothetical, thinking that that the same level of of speech like elements would be in that photograph. Well, you, you, you said deeply held religious beliefs that people have deeply held religious beliefs about black people, about women, about uh, divorce, about all kinds of things that I would think you could bring into that narrative. There was a case today that was highlighted on the advocate.com about a case in Michigan where a hairstylist has decided she will no longer serve the TQs part of the LGBTQ, the TQ plus. She will serve LGBs, but she has said publicly that the TQ plus indicates pedophiles, that um, they are strictly for indoctrinating children and they are not welcome to participate in her business. Now, this is not a litigated case at this moment, but she's already put her foot down and said she's going to do that. So right. I think we we have to extrapolate where this is going. And the danger isn't, in my mind, this case. I mean, even though I I don't like this case, the danger is where is it going next? And, and I think like part of the confusion is that idea of expression because you were just talking about text and I can I can kind of wrap my head around text but there was also conversation about like artistic expression which would then cover places like hair salons and wedding photography and stuff like that so is one of the main one of my concerns and frustrations with this decision is that it doesn't feel like all the terms have been properly defined and it leaves a lot open for people to to construe or misconstrue in whatever way they want. Sure. So, so to take those in turn again, I I don't know. I, I, again, that the problem in the, at least in this particular case that the court decided was that the website designer was being forced to say something mm-hmm. with which she disagreed. Right. The, the court clarified that there's no problem in forcing someone to treat customers equally right so so in the example you pose of um someone who is either i I, you know transgender or questioning or or intersex or whatever if if it's their identity alone that is is leading to the person not treating them as a customer and offering them equal treatment there's i don't think there's any problem with the state saying you're not allowed to discriminate on that basis Okay. If the state decides to do that, not every state does, but if a state were right. to force someone to treat all customers. Now, she might be engaged in some sort of artistic business. That's fine. But but those two things don't line up in the same way. Right. The the, the by forcing her to to treat the hair, cut the hair of a trans, transgender individual, that is in no way forcing her to say something, engage in an act of pure speech with which she disagrees, okay, so, me, right? So that's an, a very important distinction. So yeah. it sounds like where this is going to land, which is kind of where I always thought it was gonna land is with religious people of faith because they have these beliefs. And I would think you could say the same about a Christian web designer who doesn't wanna do a wedding page or wedding website for Muslims. Why couldn't that pass the muster? Uh, I think we have we have serious questions. Uh, again, the court was very, if you go back to the papers that were filed at the court um, in the petition for a writ of certiorari, which is when you're asking the Supreme Court to grant review, the petitioner presented three questions, uh, or at least two questions, one of which involved free exercise of religion. And the court declined to review that question. Mm-hmm. And it took it up 
purely on the free speech question. And so the court has set aside the question of whether there's a free exercise problem. And I think it's much naughtier, um, (laughs) K-N-O-T-T-I-E-R. Yes. (laughs) And so uh, the court for the time being, I think, does not want to get into all those questions. But yet you're right to wonder about those. And but at this point, it is not by any means, it's not clear based on this decision that that, you know, what you're talking about would necessarily follow. So because there is that ambiguity and because they they chose to not talk about that, do you think that what we're going to see is is another test case that's going to work its way through the system? And eventually there will be another case where they'll have to you know make a decision and kind of a connected and follow up question to that. What I've read is that this decision kind of undermines former precedent, but I wasn't clear on I didn't fully understand what that meant. And so my question is then, is there room for them to take away this new precedent setting decision? Like, how does that work when there's, they seem to be almost contradicting past decisions? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So so a lot there. Um, let me step back and just say what you said in, in the last question you asked about. They left a lot undecided and unclear and ambiguous and vague. Uh, I would say, given the current composition of the court, uh, the less they decide uh, and the more they leave for the future, um, the, bingo, better, bingo. Uh, the better off we are. So uh, I, I'm happy when they decide to issue narrow rulings that only deal with the case in front of them. And, and that's, you know, one of the really important things about the court, you know, the court has the power to basically overrule or veto in some sense anything that any other actor in our political system does, including the president, including Congress, any state, what have you. That's an awesome power. We want them to only use it when they absolutely have to. And so we want the court to be assured that it actually has to resolve only what is squarely in front of it and not reach out and try to prescribe rules for other other cases. Will there be more cases? Yes, there always are cases, right? That's This is an iterative process that's been going on for 235 years where each case kind of builds on what came before and the law slowly evolves. Can the court, you know, there was a fight between, you know, the dissent and the majority about whether this was actually inconsistent with prior rulings. That's typically what they fight about, right? The the typically when a case comes before the court, both sides are trying to say that their outcome is more consistent with what the court has previously decided. And the majority and the dissent have differing views about that. They each have ways in which they can describe their outcome as being more consistent, more faithful to the Constitution, to the court's prior decisions. Can the court overrule prior decisions? Absolutely. We've seen that in the last Roe v. Wade. Right. So Roe versus Wade gets overturned. And then even though the court tried to pretend that uh, Bakke and Gruder and a whole bunch of other cases weren't overruled in the affirmative action decision, I think it's pretty clear that substantial, at least substantial portions of what those prior affirmative action cases stood for in terms of diversity being a compelling interest in the context of higher education was discarded. So yes, that's a part of the process. It happens on a fairly regular basis, but it is supposed to be quite abnormal, right? It's it's the unusual case in which the court feels as if a prior ruling is so out of out of bounds that it needs to be overruled. But we would all agree that there have been some pretty bad decisions that (laughs) 
Yes. You know, like Korematsu, like, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson, like Dred Scott, Dred Scott, that deserved to be overruled. And we were very glad when the Supreme Court finally uh, put them to bed. What, what's your viewpoint? This always fascinates me how when, especially when Supreme Court justices are being confirmed by Congress, they're always talking about when these justices get in there versus the justices that are already there. Well, this justice is a constitutional justice and he follows the Constitution. This one follows something else. I mean, basically, they're all supposed to be following the Constitution. And at this point, I just feel like it's BS. We know that these six justices on the Supreme Court are conservative. And when they first got in there, I was kind of pleased with the kind of some of the decisions they were making because they were not landing on the strictly conservative side. I said, maybe we were wrong maybe to judge these people because they were, you know, put in there by Trump and and Bush and whoever. And, and maybe they're going to, uh, you know, go their own way. But obviously now that has that has gone away. Do you think that there are justices that litigate from the bench strictly on political viewpoints and not on the Constitution, even though they're saying that they do? You know, honestly, no. I mean, at least in, in what if we're talking about what subjectively is going on in their heads, no, I, I think they all actually are doing their what they believe to be their level best in understanding the Constitution in the way they think it is best understood and is best for the country and is most consistent with the, the meaning of the Constitution in, in our history. But we've gotten to a point where the nomination and confirmation process is so scientifically targeted at putting people there who have already arrived at a very clear understanding in their mind of what they think the Constitution requires, that it's much easier to predict how those people are going to behave once they get onto the Supreme Court. And the people who are responsible for putting those senators and the president in office hold their feet to the fire when it comes to the nomination process. You know, I mean, one of the really interesting lessons of the last 25 years is Harriet Myers. It wasn't Democrats who sunk Harriet Myers. It was the Republican base who said, we're not we're not guaranteed that she's going to vote the way we like it. And so you, president, are going to have to pull her nomination because we can't accept someone going up on the Supreme Court when we don't know that she's going to vote the way we want her to vote. Now, all of that said, I think it's important to realize it's it's a little different. Uh, politics at the Supreme Court is still different than it is in Congress or in the White House and other places. You know, we we did have three weeks ago Allen versus Milligan, which very, very importantly upheld Section two of the Voting Rights Act and said Alabama legislature you engaged in racial discrimination and violation of the Voting Rights Act and how you districted. You say you're supposed to do it in a purely colorblind fashion. We say no. You have to sometimes take race into account to make sure that African-Americans in Alabama have the opportunity to select an African-American member of Congress. Mm -hmm. So that exact same Supreme Court with the votes of Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh held in that fashion that also voted to, you know, strike down affirmative action. So it's not quite the same thing. It's not quite as predictable. They have different sorts of agendas that have to do more with the meaning of the Constitution over time than members of Congress do. It doesn't line up necessarily with party agendas. Justice Gorsuch, right, voted, also voted, you know, in a very what one would think is an unpredictable way in the Bostock case where he said that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act protects discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation 
and and gender identity. So it's not quite as lockstep as that. But you're absolutely right. The broader arc is that if you win presidential elections and you have control of the Senate, you're going to get to put people on the Supreme Court who generally align with your political philosophy. Yeah. And I just want to say that's what we were all screaming about when Trump was up for election. (laughs) I mean, we were not screaming about Trump necessarily because we all said he'll be gone in a short period of time. But if he puts justices on that Supreme Court, they're there forever. So that's what we were worried about. I. Yeah, and not to get completely off topic or anything, but I'm still very salty about Merrick Garland. I just, I just, oh, yeah. rah, never get over that. Yeah, I mean, it's not even a fair playing field. That's the thing. It's not like Obama had his chance and he took it and, and they said, we're not going to do it. And it would be different now. And I'm and as much as I adore Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I'm just irritated as hell still that she didn't, you know, step down in time for her to have a replacement. So. Right, right. Okay, well, thank you so much, Professor. We really appreciate you taking the time. And do you have any final thoughts, uh, some words of, uh, I don't know, optimism or or comfort for our listeners out there? I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think if you, if, if you take a long enough view, the Supreme Court is more a reflection than a leader in that the Supreme Court, it may be off by 30 years or something, and I know 30 years is a long time, but eventually it gets the, the, how the people feel, you know, a broad majorities of people feel in this country about a, an important social issue ultimately wins out, ultimately. Uh, sometimes it requires a lot of patience. But if you look at, you know, what happened with racial discrimination, you look at what happened with gender discrimination, you look at what's happened over a variety of other issues, there were ups and downs if you look narrowly. But if you look in the long term, uh, what's more important is really what, you know, 16 to 25 year olds feel about these issues of sexual orientation, gender identity, all sorts of LGBTQ, IA plus issues. So. I think there's reason, you know, when you look at the polling data and when you talk to young people, there's a lot of reason for optimism about, you know, the the ideas of equality that will prevail eventually. This Supreme Court, you know, what's the average age on this Supreme Court? It's like 65 years old. So they're not going to be there forever. And and 30 years from now, we're going to have a completely different Supreme Court and um, with a with perhaps Justice Barrett still being there, but otherwise everyone else will likely be gone. And I think the arc of history, the arc of justice points in favor of equality on all of these issues. Awesome. I I love the positive, optimistic spin. That's uh, not spin, but uh, note. That's wonderful. Okay, you don't have to answer this question, but I'm super curious because I read your bio about who you clerked for. And I just want to know what it was like to clerk for Justice Sandra. Like that, I mean, just wow. Yeah. Wow. It was it was an amazing experience, you know, a, 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 a gift of a, of a lifetime to, to have the, you know, I don't know why I was picked. I don't know what <laughs> what happened for the stars to come into alignment for that to happen. But it it totally changed my understanding of how government works, how courts work, how constitutional law works. She's, you know, an amazing individual, historic individual, not always the. I can't say always the easiest as a boss. Uh, she got she got to where she got to from where she came from on a ranch on the border of uh, New Mexico and Arizona for a reason. And it wasn't that she just kind of sat back. Uh, she she had high expectations for those who worked for her, and it was 
long hours. You know, I had to leave at uh, by 10 o'clock at least once each week so I could get to a, make one grocery store run before it closed. <laughs> so it was a long year, but it was a lot of fun and a great experience. And um, yeah, what what a what a privilege to get to work with her. That's well, how cool. And, and we hope that we totally appreciate you being here, Brad. And we hope we can reach out to you in the future on other issues that come up. We'd love to have you on again. Absolutely. Always happy to to do whatever I can to be helpful. That was amazing. It was such a cool interview. I was so happy that he answered an email from basically a virtual stranger. Um, Real quick before we do a really little bit of housekeeping here, I just want to make a note that at one point when he said, you know, the average age of the Supreme Court justices is 65. And uh, what you did not hear was the little bit where I called Chris old and we laughed about it. But I cut that out of this interview because like Chris, that joke is getting old. Oh! But um, ja. Anyways, let's throw it to Dennis who's going to talk to (laughs) Stop it. Who's going to talk to us about... Yeah, now now this is totally out of control. (laughs) Now it's your turn, Dennis. Can can you see me up here in the studio? Did you see my my great shirt I have on a day? I don't even know what this is. It's like a paisley Paisley. thing. Paisley, yeah. It's paisley. It's for 30 years old, and it has buttons sewn on to the bottom. So if you lose a button... If you lose a button, yeah. You just just pull the thing. And the the reason I have that is because I am going to be up... Cue the music, please. I'm going to be up on the KFCF Summer Pledge Runway, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. An exclusive feature of this program, a queer thing that has been on our airwaves. It is the longest running program, 30 years, on this station that has been on for 48 years. Where uh, queer issues are not a soundbite. They are not. They are the hour. They are the third Friday of the month. And this station is here to make sure that happens. Chris and Kalia volunteer their time to make sure that happens. And then we come to you, our listeners, to make sure that it happens. And you can make sure it happens with your pledge of support. 559-892-GIVE. 892-4483. Chris says, don't, I don't like that word stuff. The I way- don't. <laughs> 892 The number you can call right now. And we will take your pledge over the phone to keep this station on the air. Whatever amount works for you certainly works for us. And one of the things we used to say when we were fundraising was the cost of a a cup of coffee goes a long ways. A cup of coffee and a pastry. So if you would like to pretend that you took Chris and I out for coffee, we'll say that costs about maybe 20 bucks. You could give 20 bucks to the station every month, right? And yes. we'll uh, we'll pretend like we, we went out for coffee with you and you can tell all your friends that that's what happened. That's we called a sustaining subscriber and that can be done also online at www.kfcf.org where you look for the donate button, look for the sustaining pledge, 5 10 $15, whatever works for you on a monthly subscription helps us out here when we have to pay the bills and we have all the bills like everybody else in power and lighting and then we have stuff that nobody else has like uh, underwriting or not underwriting but uh, music uh, ASCAP rights ASCAP and all that. things yeah, and, yeah. and power bills to keep this transmitter going and it is a great thing that we have been on the air so long thanks to our listener supporters with their tax deductible donations and so help us out. 892 yeah, 4483 in the 559 area code. 
it's a queer thing. Um, you guys are great. Thanks for keeping this program running and for doing what you do. I do love, Dennis, that the number 892-4483 is 892-GIVE. I mean, that makes sense for <laughs> it doing is. it. Yeah, yeah. If All you right. can find the letters on your phone, then that's <laughs> what you can do. All right, Kalia. So let's do You Suck, You Rock. Okay, we're ready for that. Well, my first You Rock is that uh, foster youth across California will now be able to attend college free of charge after new legislation, SB 307, was signed into the state budget on Monday. The new Fostering Futures program will cover the entire cost for foster youth to attend a University of California, a California State University, or California Community College. So this affects 60,000 foster youth who are usually at age uh, 18 given uh, maybe a grocery voucher and then, uh, you know, that's about it. They don't have family, they don't have a support system and now they can get their tuition, their books, and some of their living expenses paid and they can go to college, which is freaking amazing. Yeah, this, this is what California does. We think about the future and we do the things now that will help everybody in the future. Yeah, and I just and love Foster California. kids, usually when they age out, they just are kicked to the street pretty yeah. much. Yeah. My You Rock is about Governor uh, Gavin Newsom, who we love, um, he on Wednesday announced that the state would be fining the Temecula Valley United School District in an ongoing battle over social studies curriculum that involves gay rights activist Harvey Milk. Um, On Tuesday, the board there voted against the new curriculum, which has been endorsed by the state, adding to what has been a tumultuous span of weeks in which the governor and district have been trading jabs. As a result, Governor Newsom imposed a $1.5 million fine for the district in what he calls a willful violation of the law. So we are doing the exact opposite of what Florida is doing, and we were telling schools, yes, you need to use these books and you need to teach. Yay, California. (laughs) What's your you suck? Okay, well, I have a couple you sucks, but my main you suck is Marjorie Taylor Greene brought her clown show... Yep. (laughs) ...to the floor and um, showcased pictures of hunter biden's genital area <laughs> uh and here's the kicker there was a there were children present there was a 12 year old there boy. were children present yeah, she literally held up these big i mean <laughs> i know what she did i didn't know there were kids there yeah 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 and and i'm not saying like it was an eight by 11 piece of paper that like they had board. mounted yeah. this thing on yeah oh and so, good one kalia oh i <laughs> Actually, <laughs> because these were pictures of Hunter Biden with prostitutes. Well, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. We don't, we don't know. know. That's that. the yeah, thing. Yeah. That's what the that's the narrative. But that may or may not be true. And it's just it's highly. I mean, it's just gross. But she's a clown car. That's what she does. She tries to get us mad. Yeah. But let's be mad about something else. Let's be a little bit mad at Italy. Italy is removing mothers' ma- names on birth certificates because um, in Italy, surrogacy is illegal. And gay marriage is illegal. So if you are a woman and you give birth, they won't let you put another woman's name on the birth certificate, even if you, you know, were legally married somewhere else. doesn't matter. Also, if you are a gay man couple and somebody has your baby, they will make you pick which one of the men involved you is the father. You are screwing yeah. with my potential vacation to Italy, Kaylee. Yeah, no. I just want you to know it's that. It's very grumpy over so there. My so. You Suck has to do with Jason Aldean, who released this song back in May, but it came out with a video called Try That in a Small Town. This tool, oh my God. And that's the reason, for those of you who are listening to this later, you won't have heard it, but I, we played Small Town by John Cougar Mellencamp at the opening. That's how you write a song about a small town. This, Read the lyrics to this song. I will post them on our Facebook page, but it's basically saying 
saying, if you come from my gun, I'm going to shoot you. Um, those, that's not word for word, but that's what he's saying. And he's saying things like, if you burn a flag, we're going to come for you. I don't know about if you people know, but burning flags in this country is legal. And, and protected. It, and protected. Um, and this guy says there's no problem with this song, and he's not railing against anybody, but uh, he needs to go away, and he's not going to. But Yes. Exactly. Thank you. If you want some good country music in your life, then I suggest you go back to Garth Brooks and Dolly Parton. Right, because, the 90s, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, I got a random piece of general news. Would you like to hear it? Yeah. Okay, um, there is the World Cup that is happening right now. It's in Australia, New Zealand, and it's going to run from the 20th, so it just started, of July all the way through the 20th of August. It's a whole month, and the U.S. is in Group E. Our first game is against the Netherlands on the 26th. It'll be playing 9 p.m. on Fox, but I'm sure you can stream it other places. So, as you know, the U.S. is the world champions. We've been the world champions. We were the world champions for um, a couple of different years, including uh, 2019 and 2017. Whatever. Anyways, it's very exciting. Let's all watch women's soccer. Hurrah! Cool. So listen to this show. It'll be up on a podcast starting tomorrow. Um, and we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Email is it's a queer thang, T-H-A-N-G, at gmail.com. And look for us on threads because we're there now, too. All right. <laughs>